This is a Federal News Network podcast. After a lot of cogitation, the Defense Department last month finalized revised rules for contract award debriefings, informational sessions where losing contractors can, in theory, find out why they lost. Here with the significant changes, Jenner and Block attorney Carla Weiss. Ms. Weiss, good to have you on. Thanks so much. It's good to be here, Tom. Let's start with what you feel are the most significant changes for contractors that want debriefings. And is this a case of be careful what you ask for? Sure. So I think primarily the largest change here is going to relate to timeliness. So as you know, under the enhanced debriefings, offerors are given an opportunity to ask questions, whereas in the standard debriefing, that's not a guarantee. So under the proposed rule, a debriefing would not be considered closed until after the second business day after delivering the debriefing, if no additional questions were received. So in other words, the offeror's enhanced timeline automatically was extended for two days, and it did not matter whether that offeror actually submitted additional questions or not. So this has changed under the final rule. So here now, the provision requires that the debriefing closes either at the time it's actually given to the contractor, to the offeror, or based on the date of the agency's response to the offeror's additional questions if they were timely submitted. So the debriefing is only extended if the offeror submits follow-up questions. There's no magic two-day extension that's just automatically granted to every participant in an enhanced debriefing. So that means you have to submit your questions at the end of the debriefing itself before they turn the lights off and close the door? So you have to do one of two things. Either you get your debriefing and you say, okay, good, it's closed, and now if I'm going to protest, my five-day clock ends at this time. Or you have two days under the regulation to submit your questions, and then the agency is supposed to reply in five days. So effectively, you have the two-day window at the outset, and then however long it takes for the agency to provide answers. But if you are considering in that two-day window whether or not you want to submit questions and you ultimately don't, you have eaten up two of three days of any potential protest window for getting a stay of contract performance. Of course, GAO continues with its 10-day normal jurisdiction, but you won't get the contract stay. And do questions, they need to be submitted by email or by fax? I mean, this is the government. I would expect they would still take faxes. Or how does it have to come in? Uh, Can you leave a phone message? So they're required generally to be written, but email is acceptable. Generally, in my experience, debriefings come via email. Even if there's a in-person debriefing or a telephonic debriefing, there's still email correspondence about that and you can submit them. And there's no required format. I've seen clients submit Excel files with questions. I've seen Word documents. It's not a prescribed format or template. It depends on preference for the company and how they like to do things. We're speaking with attorney Carla Weiss. She's special counsel at the law firm Jenner & Block. Is there anything in the new revised rules that's called enhanced debriefings that enhance the content of the debriefing itself, though? So as part of this, yes. With procurements that are either over $100 million or for small businesses, the government is required to submit a redacted version of their source selection decision. So again, everyone wants to protect the proprietary and confidential information of offerors, but within that source selection decision, you often get a lot more information about the trade-offs that were made, the depth of analysis that was performed, 
even if you see giant blocks of redactions, you know something's behind there as opposed to one or two sentences of what looks like to be redactions. And that depth of trade-off, that depth of analysis can really inform whether or not the agency is doing what it's supposed to do as part of its obligations to conduct meaningful competitions. Because the government is, I believe, or at least suspected to be naturally worried that the more information they give out, the more subject to protest they'll be because somewhere along the line, a offer will find something they can hang a protest on after a debriefing. Does this mitigate that feeling on the part of the government? I mean, potentially, do they leave themselves less open or more open to protests? So this is a common theme you hear. And I think ultimately, in my experience, a company that wants to protest is probably going to protest, whether they're protesting because they have no information and so they're going to allege no trade-off analysis was performed, or whether they have incredibly fulsome information and they have more specific information. But ultimately, you can generally find something to protest and something to get a best value trade-off document. And so I do think there's a lot of companies out there who just want to know what happened. They want to both understand why their proposal that they spent a lot of time and effort putting together wasn't selected, what they can do better, what the government was really looking for. And so part of it is just informational. Now, as they find something that they think reflects an error in the evaluation, that's why we have a protest process. And It's not a dirty word. Protests are sustained. Corrective action occurs because sometimes decisions aren't defensible. And we don't want frivolous protests, but I don't think a protest is something to be scared of. It's one of the great things about our procurement system, and it keeps everyone in check. And if you would just one more time review for us the thresholds of procurement size, as you mentioned, $100 million, at which someone is entitled to a debriefing. Sure. So as part of this process, DOD agencies have to give a redacted version of the source selection decision where the offeror is a small business or non-traditional defense contractor. The award is above $10 million and a copy of the selection decision is requested. So that's one bucket. The second is for all offerors where the award is greater than $100 million. And we often ask, even if it's under $100 million, it's not required, but sometimes agencies in a transparency mode will say, sure, we'll give you a copy of a redacted source selection decision because they think they've done it right, they think it's fulsome, it's meaningful, and they're willing to be open about it. So in other words, it never hurts to ask. Never hurts to ask. And looking at the final rules then, is debriefing really enhanced all that much in your view? I think so. I think from a situation where the agency gives you possibly a written debriefing and that's it, there's no opportunity to ask questions, there's no possibility of getting a a redacted source selection decision, I think it is a meaningful change to be able to ask follow-up questions and to know that the agency is required to answer them and to have awareness of what your protest timeline is. Because I think that's one of the hard things related to asking questions in the normal debriefing regime, because you can ask them, sometimes the agency will answer them, but it is always uncertain what the timeliness and timeline is if you are intending to protest and whether or not a debriefing has been closed. And as we all know, GAO is a stickler for timeliness. 
And so if you are coming in and you have a closed debriefing and you are either past your five days for the CICA stay or past 10 days for just general GAO jurisdiction, the hammer comes down. And so this is something where that bit of clarity really benefits offerors. Attorney Carla Weiss is special counsel at the law firm Jenner and Block. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.